You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. When Caverns Yawned, by Captain S.P. Meek. Part 1 Bells jangled discordantly. A whistle split the air with a piercing note. A band blared away on the platform. With a growing rumble of sound, the presidential special slowly gathered headway. The president waved a final farewell to the crowds at the platform and sat down. He chatted cheerily with his companions until the train was clear of Charleston, then rose and, with a word to the others, stepped into the car. Operative Carnes of the United States Service slumped back in his chair with a sigh of relief. "'Thank goodness that's over,' he said. "'I was never so glad to get him safely away from a place in my life.' Haggerty of the Secret Service nodded in agreement. Colonel Holmes, the military aide, looked up inquiringly. "'Why so?' Do you think Charleston an especially dangerous place for him to be? Not ordinarily. Charleston is a very patriotic and loyal city. But I have been worried. There have been vague rumors going around. Nothing definite that we could pin down, but enough to make me pretty uneasy. I think you've worried needlessly. I have been in constant touch with the Military Intelligence Division, and they have reported nothing alarming. Haggerty chuckled at the look of disgust that spread over Carnes's face. Colonel Holmes bridled visibly. "'Now look here, Carnes,' he began. "'Oh, horse feathers,' interrupted Carnes. "'The M.I.D. is all right in its place. Good Lord, what's that?' The train gave a sudden sickening lurch. Colonel Holmes sprawled in an undignified heap in one corner of the observation platform. Carnes and Haggerty kept their feet by hanging on to the rails. From the interior of the car came cries of alarm. The train righted itself for a moment and then lurched worse than before. There was a scream of brakes as the engineer strove to halt the forward progress. The train swayed and lurched like a ship in a storm. Carnes sprang for the telephone connected with the engine cab and rang excitedly. "'Hello, Bemis,' he cried when an answer came. "'Take off the brakes. Keep moving at full speed no matter what happens. What? Use your gun on him, man. Keep moving even if the train tips over.' The train swayed and rocked worse than ever as it began to gather momentum. Carnes looked back along the track and gasped. For three hundred yards behind them, the track was sinking out of sight. The train forged ahead, but it was evident that it was also sinking into the ground. The track behind them suddenly gave. With a roar like a hundred buildings collapsing, it sank out of sight in a cloud of dust. The rear car of the train hung partially over the yawning cavern in the earth for an instant before the laboring engine dragged it to solid ground. The swaying and lurching grew less. For a mile it persisted to a slight degree. With a face the color of a sheet, Carnes made his way into the train. The President met him at the door. "'What's the trouble, Carnes?' he demanded. "'I am not sure, Mr. President. It felt like an earthquake. A great cavern opened in the earth behind us. Our train was almost trapped in it.' "'An earthquake! We must stop the train at once and take charge of the situation. An emergency of that sort demands immediate attention.' I beg you to do nothing of the sort, sir. Your presence would add little to the rescue work, and your life is too precious to risk. But my duty to the people is to keep yourself alive, sir. Mr. President, this may well be an attempt on your life. There are persons who would give anything to do away with you, especially at present. You have not endeared yourself to a certain class in calling for a conference of the powers to curb Russia's anti-religious tactics." The President hesitated. He knew Carnes well enough to know that he usually spoke from accurate knowledge and with good judgment. 
"'Mr. President,' went on the operative earnestly, "'I am responsible to the American people for your safety. I beg you to follow my advice.' "'Very well, Carnes,' replied the President. "'I'll put myself in your hands for the present. What is your program?' "'Your route is well known. Other attempts may be planned, since this one failed. Let me have you transferred incognito to another train, and hurried through to Washington secretly. I am going to drop off and go back. That earthquake needs to be looked into.' Again the President hesitated. "'My desertion of the stricken area will not be favorably regarded. If I sneak away secretly, as though in fear, it will be bad for the public morale.' "'We'll let the special go through. No one need know that you have left it.' "'Well, I guess you're right. What are you going to do about it?' "'My first move will be to summon Dr. Bird from Washington.' "'That's a good move.' You better have him bring Dr. Lassen with him. Lassen is a great volcano and earthquake specialist, you know. I will, sir. If you will get ready to drop off at the next connecting point, I'll send Haggerty and Bemis with you. The rest of the party can remain on the special. All right, Carnes, if you insist. Carnes went forward to the operator of the train's radio set. In half an hour the special came to a stop at a junction point, and four men got off. Ten minutes later three of them climbed aboard another train, which stopped for them. Carnes, the fourth man, hurried to a telephone. Fifteen minutes later he was talking to Dr. Bird at the latter's private laboratory in the Bureau of Standards. "'An earthquake, Carnes?' exclaimed the doctor as the operative described the happenings. "'Wait a few minutes, will you?' In five minutes he was back on the telephone. "'It was no earthquake, old dear, whatever it may have been.' I have examined the records of all three of the Bureau's seismographs. None of them record even a tremor. What are you going to do? Whatever you say, Doctor, I'm out of my depth already. Let me think a moment. All right, listen. Go back to Charleston as quickly as you can, and get in touch with the commanding officer at Fort Moultrie. I'll have the Secretary of War telephone him and give him orders. Get troops and go to the scene of the catastrophe. Allow no one near it. Proclaim martial law, if necessary. Stop all road and rail traffic within a radius of two miles. Arrest anyone trying to pass your guard lines. I'll get a plane from Langley Field and come down on the run. Is that all clear? Perfectly, doctor. By the way, the President suggested that you bring Dr. Lassen with you. Since it wasn't an earthquake, he wouldn't be of much value. However, I'll bring him if I can get hold of him. Now start things moving down there. I'll get some apparatus together and join you in five hours. Six at the outside. Have a car waiting for me at the Charleston airport. Carnes commandeered a passing car and drove back to Charleston. He made a wide sweep to avoid the disturbed area and went direct to Fort Moultrie. Dr. Bird had been good at his word. The troops were assembled in heavy marching order when the detective arrived. A few words to the commanding officer was sufficient to set the trucks loaded with soldiers in motion. Carnes, accompanied by the colonel and his staff, went direct to the scene of the catastrophe. He found a hole in the ground, a hundred feet wide and a quarter of a mile long, sunk to a depth of fifty feet. He shuddered as he thought of what would have happened had the presidential train been in the center of the devastated area instead of at the edge. The edges of the hole were ragged and sloping, as though the earth had caved in to fill a huge cavern underground. State and local authorities were already on the ground, striving to hold back sightseers. They were very glad to deliver their responsibility to the representative of the federal government. Carnes added their force to that of the military. 
In an hour a cordon of guards were stationed about the cavern, while every road was picketed two miles away. Fortunately there had been no loss of life and no rescue work was needed. The earth-shaking had been purely a local matter, centered along the line of the railroad track. There was nothing to do but wait, Carnes thought furiously. He had worked with Dr. Bird long enough to have a fair idea of the scientist's usual lines of investigation. "'The first thing he'll want to do is explore that hole,' he mused. "'Probably that'll mean some excavating. I'd better get a wrecking train with a crane on it and a steam shovel here. A gang of men with picks and shovels might be useful, too.' He hurried to the railroad officials. The sight of his gold badge had the desired result. Telegraph keys began to click and telephones to ring. Carnes was sorely tempted to explore the hole himself, but he resisted the temptation. Dr. Bird was not always pleasant when his colleagues departed from the orders he had given. The morning passed, and the first part of the afternoon. Two wrecking trains stood with steam up at the edge of the hole. Grouped by the trains were a hundred negroes with shovels and picks. Carnes sat at the edge of the hole and stared down into it. He was roused from his reverie by the sound of a motor. From the north came an airplane. High over the hole it passed, and then swerved and descended. On the underside of the wings could be seen the insignia of the Air Corps. Carnes jumped to his feet and waved his hat. Lower came the plane until it roared across the cavern, less than a hundred feet above the ground. Two figures leaned out and examined the terrain carefully. Carnes waved again. One of the figures waved a hand in reply. The plane rose in the air and straightened out toward Charleston. "'We'll have the doctor here in a few minutes now,' said Carnes to the colonel. "'It might be a good plan to send a motorcycle out along the Charleston Road to bring him in. We don't want the guards to delay him.' The colonel gave an order, and a motorcycle shot off down the road. In half an hour it came sputtering back, with a huge Cadillac roaring in its wake. The car drew up and stopped. From it descended two men. The first was a small, wizened figure with heavy glasses. What hair age had left to him was as white as snow.' The second figure, which towered over the first, was one to merit attention anywhere. Dr. Bird was as light on his feet and as quick and graceful as a cat, but there was nothing feline about his appearance. He stood well over six feet in his stockings and tipped the beam close to the two-hundred mark. Not one ounce of fat was on his huge frame. So fine was he drawn that, unless one looked closely, he would never suspect the weight of bone and muscle that his unobtrusive tweed suit covered. Piercing black eyes looked out from under shaggy brows. His face was lean and browned, and it took a second glance to realize the tremendous height and breadth of his forehead. A craggy, jutting chin spoke of stubbornness and the relentless following up of a line of action determined on. His head was stopped with an unruly shock of black hair, which he tossed back with a hand that commanded instant attention. His hands were the most noteworthy thing about the famous bureau scientist. Long slender hands they were, with slim tapering fingers, the hands of an artist and a dreamer. The acid stains that marred them could not hide their slim beauty, yet Carnes knew that those hands had muscles like steel wire, and that the doctor boasted a grip that could crush the hand of a professional wrestler. He had seen him tear a deck of playing cards in half, with as little effort as the ordinary man would use in tearing a bare dozen of the cards. As he climbed out of the car, his keen black eyes swept around in a comprehensive glance. Carnes, trained observer that he was, knew that in one glance every essential detail which it had taken him an hour to place 
had been accurately noted and stored away in the doctor's mind. He came forward to the detective. "'Has anything happened since you telephoned me?' was his first question. "'Nothing, doctor. I followed your instructions, and also assembled a crew of men with excavating tools. "'You're improving, Carnes. This is Dr. Lassen. This is a little out of your line, doctor, but you may see something familiar. What does it look like to you?' Not like an earthquake bird, at all events. Offhand, I would say that a huge cavern had been washed in the earth, and the ground had caved in. It looks that way. If you are right, we should find running water if we dig deep enough. Have you been down in the hole, Carnes? No, doctor. Then that's the first thing to do. Have you ropes, of course? Carnes called to the waiting gang of negroes, and a dozen of these hurried up with ropes. Dr. Bird slung a rope around his body under his arms and was lowered into the hole. The rope slackened as he reached bottom. Carnes lay on his stomach and looked over the edge. Dr. Bird was gingerly picking his way across the ground. He turned and called up. "'Carnes, you and Lassen can come down if you care to.' In a few minutes the detective and the volcanologist joined him in the cavern. The top surface of the ground was rolled up into waves like the sea. The sides of the hole were almost sheer. The naked rock was exposed for thirty feet. Above the rock could be seen the subsoil, and then the layer of topsoil and vegetation. Dr. Bird was carefully examining the rock wall. "'What do you make of these, Lassen?' he asked, pointing to a row of horizontal striations in the rock. The volcanologist studied them. "'They might be watermarks, but if so they are different from any that I have seen before,' he said doubtfully. "'It looks as though some force had cut the rock away in one sharp stroke.' "'Exactly.' Notice this yellow powder on the ridges. Water would have washed it away. Dr. Bird stepped forward to the wall and idly attempted to pick up a pinch of the yellow powder he had referred to in his fingers. He gave an exclamation of surprise as he did so. The powder was evidently fast to the wall. He drew his knife from his pocket and pried at the stuff. It fell readily. He scraped again and caught a speck of the falling powder in his hand. He gave a cry of surprise, for his hand sank as though borne down by a heavy weight. With an effort he lifted his hand and examined the substance. "'Come here, Carnes,' he said. "'Hold your hand up to catch some of this powder as I scrape it off.' The detective held up his hand. Dr. Bird pried with his knife, and a shower of dull yellow particles fell. Carnes's hand sank as though the bits of dust had been a lead bar. He placed his other hand under it, and with an effort lifted both hands up a few inches. "'What on earth is this stuff, doctor?' he cried. "'It's as heavy as lead.' "'It's a great deal heavier than lead, Carnesy, old dear. I don't know what it is. I'm inclined to think you did a wise thing when you sent for me. Lassen, take a look at this stuff. Did you ever run into anything like it?' The aged volcanologist shook his head. The yellow powder was something beyond his ken. "'I have been poking around volcanoes all my life,' he said, "'and I have seen some queer things come out of the ground, but nothing like that.' Dr. Bird poked tentatively at the substance for a moment, his brow furrowed in lines of thought. He suddenly threw back his shoulders in a gesture of decision. "'Send a gang of excavators down here,' he cried. "'Never mind the power-shovel at present.' Down the ropes swarmed the gang of negroes. Dr. Bird indicated an area at one end of the cavern and directed them to dig. The blacks flew to work with a will. The topsoil and subsoil were rapidly tossed into buckets and hauled to the surface. When bare rock lay before them, the negroes ceased their efforts. 
"'What next, doctor, sir?' asked the foreman. "'Get dynamite,' cried the doctor. "'If I'm right, this underground cavern is entered by a tunnel. We'll blast away this caved-in rock until we locate it.' Then occurred a strange thing. "'There is no need to go to that trouble, Dr. Bird,' spoke a metallic voice from nowhere, it seemed. The negroes looked at one another. Picks and shovels fell from nerveless hands. "'Your guess about a tunnel is correct, doctor,' went on the voice. "'There is a tunnel leading away from the spot where you are. But to find the end would be useless to you. I have prepared for that.' From the blacks came a low moan of fear. "'Hans!' cried one of them. The cry was taken up and spread into a rolling chorus of fear. With one accord they dropped their tools and stampeded in a mad rush toward the dangling ropes. Carnes sprang forward to stop them. "'Let them go, Carnes,' cried the doctor. "'Their work is done for the present. Let's locate that radio receiver.' "'That also will be a useless search, doctor,' spoke up the voice again. I have perfected a transmitter which will send my voice through space and make it audible without the aid of the clumsy apparatus you depend on. I am also able to see you through the miles of intervening rock without the aid of any instruments at your end. I presume that you can hear me as well? Certainly, Doctor. To save you trouble, and I dislike to see you waste the efforts of your really good brain on minor problems, I will tell you that your surmise is correct. A tunnel does lead both to and from the place where you stand. It twists and turns, so that even you would be puzzled to plot a general direction. You would have to follow it inch by inch. If you tried that, naturally I would cause it to collapse before you, or on top of you, if you got too close. Be content with what you have seen, and seek a better way to trace me. Who are you, anyway? blurted out Carnes. "'Is it possible that you do not know? Such is fame. I thought that at least my friend Mr. Carnes would suspect that Ivan Saranoff had done this.' "'But you're dead,' protested the detective. "'We killed you when we destroyed your helicopter.' "'You killed merely an assistant who had disobeyed my orders. Had I not decreed his death, he would be alive to-day.' I could kill you as you stand there, resolve you into nothingness, but I do not choose to do so, yet. Other attempts I have made you have frustrated, but this time I shall succeed. I will institute a reign of terror, which will bring your rich, foolish country to its knees. Listen while I give you a taste of my power. The city of Charleston is about to be destroyed. A thunderous roaring filled the air. Crash followed crash in rapid succession. It sounded as though all the noise of the universe had been concentrated in the cavern. The earth shook and rocked like a restless sea. From above came cries of terror. The three men in the cavern were thrown to the ground. Shaken by the fall and deafened by the tumult, they hung on to irregularities of the rock on which they lay. Gradually the tumult and the shaking subsided. The cries from above became more apparent. Silence finally reigned in the cavern, and the metallic voice spoke again. "'Go back now and look at Charleston, and you will see what to expect. The rest of your cities will soon share the same fate. Beware of trying to trace my movements, 
for your lives are in the hollow of my hand. The voice died away in silence. From the edge of the hole came a cry. A Fort Moultrie officer was peering down at them. "'Are you all right down there?' he hailed. "'Right as hops,' called Dr. Bird cheerfully. "'What happened up above?' "'I don't know, doctor. There seems to be a lot of smoke and fire over in the direction of the city. I expect the quake shook them up a little this time. What shall we do now?' "'We're ready to come up. First I'm going to send up a wheelbarrow full of yellow powder. Rig a crane to lift it, for it's too heavy to try to hoist with ropes.' With the aid of Carnes and Dr. Lassen, Dr. Bird collected a few cubic inches of the yellow powder from the ridges in the rock. He made the wheelbarrow containing it fast to the wire cables of the crane, and gave the signal. Slowly it was raised to the surface. When it had safely reached there, he turned to his companions. "'Grab a rope and let's go,' he said. In a few moments they were on the upper level. With the efforts of half a dozen men, the body of the wheelbarrow was lifted into the car. With a few final words of instruction to the colonel, Dr. Bird and his companions entered the car and were whisked away to the city. A spectacle of destruction and ruin awaited them. Fully one-fourth of the city had sunk thirty feet into the ground. The sinking was not even or uniform. The sunken ground was rolled into huge waves, while buildings which had collapsed lay in confused heaps on all sides. From a dozen places in the area, columns of fire rose in the air." Dr. Bird wasted little time on the scene before him. His car skirted the edge of the huge hole and took the road toward Charleston Airport, which was in a section which had suffered little. In half an hour the Army transport roared into the air, carrying Dr. Bird's precious load of yellow powder. Four hours later they dropped to a landing at Langley Field. "'Now, Carnes,' said the doctor as they debarked from the plane, "'there is work ahead. It may be too late to do much tonight, but we have no time to waste.' Get Bolton on the wire, and tell him that we have positive evidence that Saranoff is still alive, and still up to his devil's tricks. Start every man of the Secret Service and every Department of Justice agent that can be spared on the trail. He can't live underground all the time, and you ought to get on his tracks somehow. I'm going up to the laboratory and see what I can do with this stuff. Report to me there tomorrow morning. Carnes hurried away. Bolton, the chief of the United States Secret Service, had long ago recovered from any professional jealousy he had ever felt of Dr. Bird. The doctor's message that Ivan Saranoff, the arch-enemy of society, the head of the Young Labor Party, the unofficial chief of the secret Soviet forces in the United States, was alive and again in the field against law and order, was enough to set in motion every force that he controlled. Waving aside precedent and crashing his way past secretaries, he set in motion not only the agents of the Department of Justice, but also the post office forces and the specialized but highly efficient military and naval intelligence divisions. The telephone and telegraph wires from Washington were kept busy all night carrying orders and bringing in reports. But despite all this activity, it was with a disappointed face that Operative Carnes sought the doctor in the morning. Dr. Bird was in his private laboratory on the third floor of the Bureau of Standards. When Carnes entered, he was seated in a chair at his desk. His black eyes shone out from a chalky face like two burned holes in a blanket. Carnes started at the appearance of utter weariness presented by the famous scientist. Dr. Bird straightened up and squared his shoulders as the detective entered. "'Any luck, Carnes?' he asked eagerly. "'None at all, doctor.' 
We haven't been able to get a single trace of his corporeal existence since that submarine was destroyed off the Massachusetts coast. All we have is Karuska's word that he is still alive. We heard his voice yesterday. His or another's. True. Have you set in motion every agency that the government has? Every one. Either Bolton or I have talked to the chief of police in every large city of the United States and Canada. Every known member of the Young Labor Party, who is above the mere rank and file, is under close surveillance. Good enough. Keep at it, and you'll trace him eventually. As soon as I get a few quarts of black coffee into my system, I'll start another line of search going. What did you find out last night? I found that our seismograph recorded the Charleston disaster. It was merely a faint jog about what should be caused by a severe landslide. The disaster did not affect the Earth's crust, but was purely local. That gives me a clue to his method. I described the affair to Bolton, and he suggested that it might be caused by a disintegrating ray. End of Part 1